Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. Representing one generation, and I'm Jill Wine-Banks, representing a very different one. I also wear hashtag Jill's pins, and today's pin is a big question mark because we're going to be talking to a guest who is founding a third party. And I have lots of questions about what that party stands for and what it would mean to our system of government. We'll see whether or not it answers Jill's question mark. Since Trump has taken control of the Republican Party, there are an increasing number of Republicans, elected officials and voters who feel that they no longer have a home in the Republican Party. In 2020, the Republican Party had no platform and seemed to have evolved into a cult personality around Trump that doesn't believe in free and fair elections and accepts violence as a means to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. What is the solution to this, if any? One former Republican who agrees that the Republican Party no longer represents the values that he thinks um, it used to have and that he joined the party as a member of, uh, thinks he has a solution. It's a third party. His name is Congressman, former Congressman David Jolly. He's now an MSNBC political analyst. And he's not just complaining about the state of the Republican Party. He's one of the people launching a third party called the Forward Party. And he says it's not left, right, it's just forward. And we're going to press David on exactly what that means and what the party stands for, what it would offer both to voters and to candidates in terms of supporting them, and why it'll be different from the Green Party, Ralph Nader, Ross Perot, and other third parties that have tried but have failed dramatically at ever getting into office. But we're really excited to find out more about this third party. Thank you, David, for being with us. It's great to be with you, Jill. Great to be with you, Victor, as well. We're excited. So we have lots to discuss about the Forward Party. But first, I want our audience to get to know you a little bit better. Tell us where you grew up and went to school and when your first uh, political involvement was. <laughs> well, that's that could be a long story or a short one. I'll make it a short one. Um, Florida has always been my home. I was born there. Uh, but I really had a love of of civics, if you will, as a um, as early as junior high. You know, I was a young teen, or I guess mid-teen, when the first 24-hour CNN news station came alive, and I was just transfixed by it, by public affairs and civics and politics. And look, I'm a person of faith. I believe you're given the desires of your heart. Uh, it led me into politics. I tried to quit two or three times, and it drew me back in. Um, but but I think the, the story, particularly for the younger generation, that is a little intriguing is uh, I was a pastor's kid from essentially the rural South and had never been north of Tennessee when I graduated from college, didn't know anything wow. about the world, if you will, um, but was determined to work in politics. So I was one of those stories. I just I found my way to D.C. I had some loving parents who helped me through the transition, finding a place to live. And I just committed to, to work in D.C. not knowing a single soul. I ended up working on Capitol Hill for about 20 years, had the opportunity to work for the Florida delegation. Uh, never anticipated being a member of Congress, but life's journey took me into what ended up being a special election for a congressional seat. And at the time, the most expensive race in congressional history. Um, that record only lasted a few months because of the acceleration <laughs> of money in politics. Uh, but that's a quick nickel. My, my home has always been Florida, um, but work and politics have kept me up and down the East Coast for the better part of my career. Well, Florida has been in the news lately, and you mentioned civics education, and um, that's something that uh, we talk a lot about this show, just the lack of funding for civics education these days. Um, so hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that in high schools because it's so important. And I think for me especially, definitely helped in terms of getting me inspired and motivated to um, have a role in politics and, and civics. So, um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your time in government. Tell us about what the Republican Party meant to you when you ran for office uh, back in 2013, was it? Yeah. So, look, I was a lifelong Republican, largely around, I guess, economic issues. Again, as a very young person, I'm not sure how you really start to identify your politics, but I certainly was kind of in that less government, less tax uh, crowd coming out of the 80s, a bit of the Reagan generation, if you will. 
And, you know, I stayed in that lane, even as the party, as Newt Gingrich in the 90s began to take control, even as the party started becoming more and more conservative. I was somewhat out of step from the time I entered politics on Capitol Hill as a young staffer. But, you know, coalitions are broad. Um, the tent should be large. I, I think arguably it's not now. But the Republican tent was large enough for me to be uh, a moderate Republican for most of my career. But uh, starting in 2010, obviously, with the emergence of the Tea Party, I had a very governing focused conservative philosophy. Uh, the Tea Party and much of the Republican caucus started to develop a shutdown conservative mentality, meaning just shut down all functions of government. We would have arguments where I would say, look, less government doesn't mean no government. But the Republican Party really had this hunger for no government at all. And so I was really out of step. I, I left politics for a few years, was in specialty finance, stayed involved in some campaigns. And my predecessor in 2013 had been in office for 43 years. He was a mentor to me, a bit of a father figure. Uh, he passed away in office. I handled much of his personal and political matters. And the last thing I was going to do is find someone to hold the seat. Uh, it was a seat that Barack Obama won twice, but a Republican member had, had won. And one of the 10 or 15 majority maker seats in the House, a true 50-50 seat. And as the story goes, I couldn't recruit anybody to run. I was polled at 2%, and the margin of error was four. So that tells you <laughs> where, where my popularity was. Um, but 15 weeks later, I was a member of Congress. And I arrived into a caucus that was kind of rounding the corner of the real strength of the Tea Party and preparing for the emergence of Donald Trump. So where my politics all the way back in the 90s were not ever a good enough uh, form of politics for the Republicans, they certainly weren't going into the 16 cycle. And that's ultimately when my final breakup with the party occurred. That's a fascinating change. And you held office from 2014 to 2017, and then at that point didn't run for re-election. Was your decision not to run for office again based on the direction of the party or something else? Well, <clears throat> I did. So I'll, I'll spare you the long story about politics. The district I was in um, has been gerrymandered and re-gerrymandered about a dozen times in 10 years. I had six elections in about 24 months. So I had a special primary election, a special general, turned around and had a general primary and a, and a general general, and then got redistricted and ended up running for a year and a half for the U.S. Senate when Marco Rubio was, um, was running for president and said he'd never return to the Senate. I was notionally the Chamber of Commerce Republican, and I was running against this guy that nobody had heard of at the time named Ron DeSantis. He was the... <laughs> Candidate, a hard right conservative. I joke, I think I'm the only candidate who's ever led Ron DeSantis in a race because for about a year I, I led that race when nobody was paying attention. Um, Rubio gets back in. My district had been drawn to one that Obama won by about 12. And so I, I had a choice to make. Do I just leave office or do I make a run for it? And honestly, as a Republican in a swing district who had tried to lead on marriage equality, on climate science, campaign finance reform, gun control, my numbers were pretty good in a Obama plus 12 district. And so I, I made one last run at that new district and I ended up losing by about three. Um, for the last year I was in office, the, the newspaper on Capitol Hill roll call would put my picture in the paper every week as the most vulnerable member of Congress. I was the one that was destined to lose. Wow. And every week, myself and my staff had to see my picture in the paper saying, this guy is certain to lose. And ultimately, I, I did lose in the 16 cycle, sharing a ballot with Donald Trump, actually. Wow. So now it seems like you've taken on a new challenge, which is you and Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman and uh, Miles Taylor, who's also, by the way, been a guest on this show um, and others have launched forward the, a new party. And um, I've looked at your website and tried to understand exactly what the forward party is about. But I'd love for you to share with our audience sure. uh, what you think the forward party is. Sure. It, it is a new kind of political coalition that I think represents a bit of the pro-democracy coalition that is currently uh, stopping 
the 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 road to authoritarianism, if you will. And I would break it down into several elements. Let's start with the the demand signal, the market demand. We know that 40% of the country, when they register, say, I can't see myself in the Democratic or Republican Party. That's true of myself. I'm part of that 40%. Um, but I think what what we often get wrong, and I, I've now been in this independent space for going on five years, is we think that the independent space is all moderates. They're not. They're absolutely not. It's the biggest mistake of all to think of independents as being moderates. Their politics are actually left, right, and middle, not just as a collective, but internally. So my politics, you know, I'm for an assault weapons ban, but lower corporate taxes. Find me a coalition where I get to exercise both of those principles. It doesn't exist. And so what what we kind of worked on, and the, and the names you name represent kind of left, right, and middle, was a coalition that said, look, if we can come together around some basic principles, economic opportunity, personal liberty, fundamental defense of democracy, then what if we actually use that to create a coalition that celebrates independent thought, celebrates ideological diversity, uh, welcomes pluralism, right? The very basics upon which our nation was founded, that, that competing ideas are a good thing. And, and that is why it's a new kind of party. There is not a top-down platform. There's actually the basic tenet of let's come together around shared values, and then let's elevate voices from different communities, from Boston to Birmingham, from Seattle to Miami, that represent uh, competing voices. And it has been a kind of a wonderful celebration of ideological diversity. Now, Creating a party comes with a whole a whole bunch of questions, and, and I look forward to having those questions today. What I would say is the, the second mistake that's often made in this space is a coalition tries to chase the shiny object and think, we're going to run some super moderate for president. That is not the forward party's mission. In fact, a, a political group today that set out to get ballot access in 50 states could not do that under the law. That is not the focus of the forward party. The forward party's idea is multi-party democracy has greater diversity of representation, greater voter participation, greater voter satisfaction. And so why don't we try to build a sustainable, durable, viable third party in the United States to elect people from mayors to town supervisorships to state legislators and one day perhaps Congress and the Senate? Okay, so when you started out your description, I was thought, oh, that's a compelling and I, a good idea. Um, and, and also, let me just say, on your website, it says that you are fighting for the American people with practical, common-sense solutions, not left, not right, but forward, centrist. So that's a little different than when you're saying it's not, when I hear centrist, to me, that is middle. And now you're saying, well, we're not really because the people who aren't affiliated or don't feel they have a home in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party are not necessarily uh, centrist. They are oftentimes the far right, the far left. Um, so how does that work? And maybe even more importantly, when you say there's room for all these different positions, you could have very much competing and opposite positions all within the same party and that it would still be a party? Explain to me how that works. I yeah. yeah, sure. So um, it's a great question. And I would I would suggest there's, there's some nuance to both the question and the answer, which is this. Um, to suggest that, that a party is going to be a centrist party, I believe repeats the failure point of all, all parties today, major and minor, which is it starts out by saying this must be your ideology and come subscribe to it. This, this is a reverse theory of the case, which is if we get people with competing ideologies, competing perspectives to actually work together, they can develop consensus. Now, consensus can be outcome-based, measurable policy, right? You could look at gun policy, for instance, in a way, what truly reduces gun policy? And it's not an ideological approach. You mean approach. What, what, can, actually what reduces gun violence? Sorry, what, what reduces gun violence? It's actually a metric-based approach, not an ideologically-based um, approach. But it may be, let's, let's take one of the hardest issues today, which is abortion. And, and in a post-Dobbs world, everybody wants to know, where does the party stand on abortion? Mm -hmm. I made a comment the other day and got really, really hit hard for it, that I actually think a party can be big enough to hold both pro-choice and pro-life voices. And people reacted. And I said, wait a minute. 
that's been in my lifetime. It, you know, when I started on Capitol Hill, the Democratic Party had a strong blue dog caucus that represented pro-life voices. And the Republican Party had a moderate New England wing that represented pro-choice voices, but they all fit within each of the parties. It's only been in the last 20 years where the parties chose to kick those people out and to say, no, we're, we're going to have stronger ideological litmus tests. Now, play this forward. And this is this is an opinion I... I um, I don't talk about the issue much because there are better voices than me to talk about it. But in terms of analyzing how we approach issues, it's it's an important one. Jill, you well know that the Roe the Roe Casey framework was a balancing test mm-hmm. framework, and the balancing test actually represents consensus that the Roe court really struggled with a hard issue: how do we create personal liberty, bodily autonomy, privacy, decisions over health care while also representing, which Roe and, and Casey did, some notional state interest at some point along the pregnancy curve where the state does have the ability to assert a state interest. That's a balancing test. And, and I would suggest that both parties would be wise to embrace and celebrate the balancing test, Republicans as well. That's not actually what you hear uh, in, in both parties. And I would also say that's okay. The parties today, major and minor, libertarians have done this and Greens have done this, have made the decision that they are going to be a home for very specific and often very rigid ideology. And for many Americans, that's that's a great celebration. They Their politics are informed by rigid ideology. And if so, there's a home for you. But if you want to be a part of a coalition that maybe starts left, right, or middle on hard issues and ends up in a balancing test place, and celebrates that the balancing test actually does balance some competing interests. That's the spirit of of what Forward is trying to advance. Okay, but let's take that as an example because I believe in uh, bipartisanship, let me say, to begin with, and I also believe in balancing tests in a lot of different policies. But I think what I read and have heard, the Forward Party would accept not just a balance, because the balance would be, well, is it 21 weeks? Is it 24 weeks? At what point does the state have an interest? And, you know, it's a sliding scale where you balance out which it is. But what we're seeing now from Republicans is there is a zero, you know, and there's no compromise from zero. So if, if someone is at six weeks, I, is that really something that you could say you can balance six and 24? I, I don't know. That's that's where you get into, you know, you can balance 21 and 24 maybe. But if you're at six right, right. and if you're at no exceptions, which some of these laws have. Um, so how right. do you accommodate those divergent views? Right. I I would suggest those individuals are going to find a home in today's Democratic or Republican Party, not in the forward party. And that's okay, right? Forty percent of the country is would make us a competitive party next to the majors. It would actually exceed. Right. Republicans and Democrats today by registration represent just under 30 percent of the country each. So they are home to to ideologies that only represent a third of the country. We're asking to represent the other third that says, <clears throat> look, I don't I don't need the zero weeks or the six weeks and I don't need the late term conversations. What I need is a balancing test. And look, specifically on this issue, I, I think let's just stick to the substance of, of the issue for a moment. I do think what our nation is is hopefully wrestling with. And I think we saw some of this in Kansas and we're seeing in other places is we have been told for 40 years that you have to choose a side, pro-choice or pro-life. And I don't think we've ever really pushed back on those labels until Dobbs was handed down. And I think what the country is now recognizing is the better question is, are you pro-Roe or anti-Roe? And the interesting thing is I think a lot of Republicans are actually pro-Roe. They're pro-balancing tests. I think a, a, a fair amount of evangelical Christians who would never identify themselves as pro-choice, either pre-Dobbs or post-Dobbs, are actually pro-Roe. And that's that you're starting to see in some of the exercise of the midterm politics, which is don't put me in the camp of absolutism on either side, 
maybe Roe represents the right balancing test. That's the spirit of forward. I mean, I, I hate to use this that issue because it is the right. hardest one, but people like to jump all the way to the hardest issue, and I get that. Um, but but the spirit behind forward is how do we bring together like-minded Americans to just give voice to the most number of people and to move the well, country I, forward? Let's, let's not stick just with that one issue because there are so many, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and not, not because it's hard, because I like talking about hard things, but because I want our audience to have some concept of what it would mean if they were to affiliate with this broad and loose sure. coalition. Right. Um, I mean, there is on your website, one of the primary things it says is that you support three things, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, and independent redistricting commissions to eliminate gerrymandering. Um, and of course, those are all things that you could have a, a pro or a con position on, but those are ones that you are all pro on. Um, so we can talk about those, but before we do, let's look at things like some of the other big issues that a party has to take a position on, um, or at least in my narrow view of what a party does. And that would include things like same-sex marriage, guns, NATO, student loan debt, um, taxes, minimum wage, climate. I mean, how how do I know from what I've read on your website yeah. whether if I went for a candidate, they would support what I believe about climate change, whether they would support minimum. Sure. Those are things that are just, it, it's, is it just because it's in development now that I don't know the answers to these or what? No. Or because you really are that flexible? No, it's because, no, it's because it's a new kind of party. And, and I would suggest the reason, the reason that when I left the Republican party, as Victor and I were discussing, that I did not join the Democratic party is because the parties today crush independent yeah. thought. They crush it. They crush it. I, I say that from my personal experience. As a Republican who tried to lead on, on guns and equality and all these other important national issues, absolutely not. The party would not let me do it. If I had joined the Democratic Party, they would have crushed my exercise of other convictions that were too moderate or conservative for the Democratic Party. So why repeat that failure? Why say that a party is going to subscribe from the national platform level down to the, down to members of Congress, to state legislators, to mayors, to dog catchers. That to be a dog catcher in, in Peoria, you have to be pro or anti this and pro or anti that. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so the idea is, why not, why not consider how the nation was founded and how the Congress was designed, which is to say to candidates, if you can properly represent the views of your community, and receive the affirmation and support of your community because you are bringing forward positions on those issues that reflect your constituency and your community. And, and you have a basic commitment to, to, as I mentioned, economic opportunity, personal liberty, basic defense of democracy, and the shared values of working together, then go for it. But I, I would also give you as a, a raw example of this. And I think, I think a lot of people should be offended by this. Why is it <clears throat> that the major parties today start each cycle writing off and ignoring half of the country, right? They start by saying our values, let's stick with the Republican Party. The Republican Party starts the cycle by saying our values, our top-down values will never represent communities of Portland, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, name, name New the York, constituencies. Yeah. And therefore, yeah, and therefore we're not even going to try to speak for you. We're not going to try to be a party that, that gives voice to you. And you know what? If we win, we get to ignore you for four years. I mean, that's the height of arrogance. That's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And so what we're saying is let's reverse the model and say if we can bring voices up from within those communities. Now we've changed American politics and we've changed the way America sees political parties. Look, this, is not, this goes back to the, the shiny object um, fallacy. This is not and could not be about running a presidential candidate. Um, it is about electing people 
particularly as partisanship continues to drip further and further down into local races. It's about electing people that are committed to their communities and giving voice to their community. I, that, I, I have so many political scars from my personal journey. Yeah, look, I, Jill and Victor, I certainly have personal convictions, but I'm also at the, the point at which I don't care. Just give me a government that actually works for more people and stops the fighting and heals the nation's wounds. And you know how we do that? We actually respect people and we, we respect diversity of opinions. And we say, look, if we're all committed to being in this together, then let's do it together. That's the spirit of the forward party. It's a very optimistic collegial spirit. And it's why, you know, I, I do not have an official role. That, that's an important disclosure, I should say. I led one of the reform organizations mm. that merged into what is now the forward party. Um, but it's why I got excited about the idea of working with progressives, conservatives and moderates to just try to eschew the, the gridlock and the breakdown we currently suffer from. So, of course, from the country. devil is always in the details. And while the general concept of this sounds good, and I would say the Republican Party is certainly the antithesis of what you're describing, because you can just look at the primaries, and if you spoke out against Donald Trump, eight out of ten of you are out of office, either because you just didn't even want to face re-election or because you were voted out uh, in favor of a Trump candidate. That's There's right. no question about that. Whereas the Democrats, of course, have Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, who represent very different views than the mainstream. And the Democrats have, you know, AOC and Senator Warren and Bernie Sanders, as well as the, the conservative members and the moderates. And Joe Biden, I would say, is a genuine centrist who is trying to find the the median to get to, even willing to talk to Republicans to make this bipartisan. Um, and, and what worries me is that if I were supporting a candidate, yes, okay, at the level of dog catcher, uh, I, my community doesn't happen to elect one, but if we did, um, <laughs> I, I would only care about how he cared about animals. I don't care what his view on anything else is. Um, but if I'm voting for a senator who is going to be facing issues like war and peace, like arming Ukraine, but all of those kinds of things, I need to know sort of a framework that is a little tighter for me than, you know, what you're saying. And I'm, I'm trying to, because I like the concept. I mean, I'm not against the concept. And, and I certainly like, sure. you know, the, the three sort of, processy kind of things about gerrymandering, which is horrible. And, um, and and Victor is a big proponent of ranked choice voting. So maybe he'll talk to you about that. Um, so I'm just that's I'm just trying to really come to an understanding of how I would feel supporting, sure. you know, you're saying you wouldn't have a national platform because you're never going to run a presidential candidate. But is that really true that you would never consider having a national candidate? Because a, a senator is a national candidate. Well, look, I mean, the, the further you get in the future, it's, it's hard to predict. What I can tell you is in 2024, there's zero plans to run. I have no idea in 2028. I hope forward is successful. We'll get to 28 and 32 as, as the time comes. I doubt I would still be a part of that. But let, let's go to your, your needing of certainty. And I would suggest... It's a matter of looking to the candidates for certainty as opposed to looking to the party. Take the current race for U.S. Senate in Utah, where the Utah Democrats made, I use this in the analytical way, they, they decided to, to make a rational political decision and recognize that a Democratic nominee could not beat Mike Lee, one of the people who conspired uh, leading up to the January 6th events. And so an independent candidate, Evan McMullen, emerged, and Utah Democrats said, we're going to work in coalition with Evan McMullen. You as a voter in Utah can look at Evan McMullen yeah. and see exactly what he stands for and push him and stress test where he stands on positions and make a decision. Is Evan McMullen a better voice for Utah than Mike Lee or not? And I would suggest that that should be untethered from a national party. I, I, again, a lot of people want the national party top-down platform for, all, for good reasons. I don't. I absolutely don't. I, I don't want to be told by 
a national party that it's their way or the highway. And and what I would also suggest is 40% of the country has rejected it. And and I think here's here's my greatest disappointment from a, a pure civics standpoint, a Pollyanna who, who believes in the system and would like to believe we can all get along even though we're not. Probably what angers me the most is when Republicans or Democrats say, oh, how dare you? I can't believe you would try to organize that 40% that's rejected us. When what they could be doing is figuring out how to get that 40% for themselves. Think about it. I, I, I really mean that. I, I don't really talk about this publicly because it sounds like, you know, crybaby stuff. And I don't mean it this, this way. It's just, uh, let me give you a high profile example of a former Republican member by the name of David Jolly in the swing state of Florida who said the Republican Party is going in exactly the wrong direction and I'm going to leave. You would think maybe the Florida Democrats or the National Democrats would say, huh, maybe that jolly guy's journey is similar to a lot of other American voters. What are we doing to scoop up those voters who are looking for a new political home? But the truth is they don't have room for those voters. And and again, you can argue that's okay, right? If ideology is the compass of a party, okay, then, then there's not a home. But it's a little offensive to me when, when national Democrats and national Republicans and, and the, the pundits that are in the pockets of the parties say, oh, how dare you take these voters? We're just taking voters that the major parties have chosen to ignore and that are available to them. And frankly, that the parties have the resources to attract, but don't want to. This is a 40% of the country that's been pushed aside by the major parties. And and I get a little defensive of, of the fact that we are often told within that 40% that we shouldn't be exercising our franchise in a way that reflects our own politics, but we should just hand over our franchise to a major party because the system's too big to take off. It's it's an interesting it, it dynamic. Is, and and to really I'm not get down suggesting that, that in any way. I hope you're not hearing anything I'm saying as being in, in that regard. Oh no, but, no, no. But no. It I, is, I, I know you're I'm still. It. I, it's sort of. I'm Absolutely just scratching not. my head, saying, "Well, then there really is no party. There's just this affiliation of individuals who have individual viewpoints that can be at 180 degree odds from each other. And so, what we have to do is just say one." We will listen to each candidate in their positions and match up against the top 10 issues that we care about. You know, what is their view on the Equal Rights Amendment, mm-hmm. on abortion, on guns, on whatever your top 10 are. And we'll pick the candidate from an unidentified pool of people. When I say unidentified, from a, a thing that is got a name forward but that doesn't really identify any viewpoint because you could have a primary between two forward candidates who reflect completely opposite things. Oh, sure. And so that is an even more dramatic change than saying we're going to add a viable third party. It's saying we're going to destroy party membership, that it's it's not going to be that you identify that all voters become independent voters. So that, that was just... Um, but you've helped me to understand this, and I know Victor has sure, lots sure. of questions. So uh, l- let me let me turn over to <laughs> you him. You got it. Now. You got it. Well, so I, I just as a follow up, I'm wondering. All right. So if candidates from the forward party get elected, what happens once they get into office? Because if everyone runs on a unique platform, how do people in office agree? Or what's like the, what's the process once someone gets elected from the forward party? And if there are many members in, say, a state legislature. Yeah. So ultimately, they answer to their voters. Right. But if you consider the current electioneering system, which is largely in 30 plus states, closed primaries that then lead into gerrymandered legislative districts, the incentive structure for currently elected officials is to is to tow straight to their base mm-hmm. and to not moderate and not seek consensus or they'll get primaried in a closed primary seat or they'll get run out of town in a gerrymandered seat. So. The, the affirmation or rejection of voters is what solves the first, the conflicting views. As Jill said, if there are two forward party candidates running for a state legislative seat, ultimately the voters determine who represents our community, community's values the most. And in, in virtually all states, the party can choose to open their primary process. 
right? Even in states like I believe in Connecticut may be an example where you have closed primaries. The parties mm -hmm. can choose to open the primary. So what you would see in forward is a very open party, open primary system that ultimately allows the most voices from the community to determine, is this person serving our community correctly or not? And, and that's always, I mean, that's the design of, of our democratic system, the push and the pull. You can try to lead in one direction or you can follow your constituency and ultimately it's the blend that keeps somebody in office. So can I ask you a question from a different perspective maybe to help me understand, mm -hmm. which is from the standpoint of the candidate and the standpoint of the voter, what does the existence of the forward party add? So what... Yeah. What services does the forward party give to candidates with divergent views? What benefits does it give to the voter who's trying to decide between two people who have nothing in common but are running under the yeah. same label? Yeah. So so first, I, I mean, I would say in in nine out of 10 cases, if not 10, you're really not going to see radically divergent views coming from the same community in a way in which both candidates would be competitive, right? That's where a community affirmation and the votes actually matter. If somebody's completely out of step and somebody's very much in step, yeah, they might have divergent views, but one candidate's competitive in their community and one's not. So there is that forcing function of electoral behavior and representative behavior. Um, <clears throat> what I would say, what does a party bring? And this is this is very important. This gets into the real wonky stuff mm -hmm. of how we electioneer in the United States. The one thing the two major parties have done is ensure that it is, it is incredibly difficult for an independent candidate to emerge or a minor party to be recognized. And it largely matters around access to the ballot and campaign finance laws. There, the, there are examples in all 50 states. I'll, I'll give you just one or two. In Florida, an independent candidate today, if they ran without a party affiliation for state legislature or for, for a mayorship, they are limited, I think, to raising $500 per individual and can only raise individual money. Maybe if they can raise corporate, it's 500 as well. But, but that's it, right? So you go around to your neighbors, you raise money, um, and in races that cost a million or $2 million, there's zero way to be competitive. Contrast that <clears throat> with the two major parties recognized in the state of Florida. If I were to run as a Republican or a Democrat, the party in Florida can accept unlimited corporate and union money, mm -hmm. million, two million, $10 million, and can turn around and spend unlimited money for their candidates. So now as a Republican candidate, I can have $10 million in my race. As an independent candidate, I'm lucky to have 10,000. In, in uh, New York, to have a ballot line for a party to run candidates, you actually have to run an independent candidate for governor and get three or 5% of the vote, it's, it's now 120,000 votes. We actually did that. We ran a unity ticket in New York in 2018, a Democrat at the top of the ticket, a Republican for Lieutenant Governor. We passed the threshold and then we received party status, which gives us ballot access for every office from governor mm -hmm. to dog catcher. Now you're, you have the ability to actually nominate and run candidates and you've broken through that barrier so that voters on Tuesday, the first Tuesday in November, can see more choice. And, you know, when we talk about defense of democracy as a fundamental tenet of the forward party, yes, it's about all the slide towards authoritarianism we're talking about. It's about protecting our institutions, but it's also about fundamental electoral reform that allow as many voters and as many candidates as possible to meet on the same election day and give everybody the same opportunity to have their voice heard. And we want to get into those electoral reforms later on, but I want to bring into, you know, when I talk to my peers, there seems to be a lot of skepticism because, you know, I was born two years after the 2000 presidential election and saw the results of the 2016 election. Both elections resulted in the winner of the popular vote losing the election because of electoral college. But both elections also kind of involve third parties that took away votes from the two competitive parties um, without coming close to winning. Um, Ralph Nader, of course, in 2000 took votes away from Gore and then John Anderson in 1980 and Ross Perot in 1992 and 1996. And so I'm wondering with, I mean, I guess the history of how 30 par third parties have mm -hmm. fared um, 
in presidential elections, at least. I know you said that you don't have any anticipation of them running on the national level, but how are you going to ensure that third parties are going to work this time and specifically as the forward yeah. party? Yeah, I'd suggest we've learned the lessons of history, which is why we say this is not designed to run a, a 2024 ticket. And look, you're going to see some Beltway establishment types run a, a third party independent ticket. It won't be the forward party, but it's going to happen. And it's going to happen because the market demand is 100 percent there. The market demand is there because the major parties have left behind a large part of the country. That's just the numbers. I, Gallup, it's, it, Gallup shows over 60% of the country has actually suggested a third party would be helpful. So part of it is also saying, you know, can we realistically expect American voters to fully fall in line with only two choices? That's as big a risk sometimes as having a uh, uh, third candidate on the ballot. So look, Forward is not pursuing a presidential run in 24. On the spoiler effect, what I would say is without Ross Perot, Bush 41 might have beaten Clinton. So if you're a Democrat, having Ross Perot in the race was probably a good thing. If you're a Democrat, you're probably upset about 2000 and 2016. So I get the, the spoiler effect. Um, look, I am not going, I, David, in terms of the exercise of my personal franchise to stay in that lane, I am not going to participate in any experiment that returns uh, an authoritarian to the White House. And as we sit here today, that would be represented in a Donald Trump candidacy. So I'm out if the movement were to ever go that way. But it's also why we haven't designed it to go in that way. I, I would say it is an overly simplistic analysis that we often make to simply say, well, we can't have a third party candidate because what you're saying is, hey, 40 percent of the country just fall in line. And, and that's a tricky conversation. It it's not received well. I, and I mean this as an analyst. It's really not received well by the independent voter when when you keep poking at him saying you're not allowed to be who you are. You have to be somebody you're not. It, it's a hard message for the independent space to absorb. And it's why, look, I. You know what I would love about the forward party or the Greens or the Libertarians or any minor party? I would absolutely love, as an American voter, for the major parties to recognize, what did I do that doesn't allow me to have the Jill Stein, Ralph Nader, Andrew Yang voters right now? How do I get them? How do I create a home in my party, my Democratic Party, my Republican Party, big enough for these people? Because if I do that, I'm going to have a governing majority for the next 20 years. I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know why they don't do that. When you say governing majority, okay, you're not running a candidate for president, but you will for Senate, I take it. And in the Senate, if you end up with some number of you know winners who have very different views, how does that lead to a governing majority? You're still in yeah. the situation of you need bipartisanship or tripartisanship or whatever it would be called because it wouldn't be bi anymore. But, okay, you, you would need some way of talking to Democrats and Republicans to get them to form some sort of governing coalition. Yeah, it, it's done all around the world. I mean, the United States is an outlier and only being a two-party democracy. In multi-party democracies in, in the Western world, yeah. this is done all the time through coalition governing. And, and we often examine it in the U.S. when we talk about the Senate in particular is something called the fulcrum effect. Um, there was a group called Unite America that still exists today in the reform space, but they set out four or six years ago to try to elect five independent U.S. senators and they had to focus on really small dollar states where they could possibly mm -hmm. win with, with little financial resources. But the idea was to create a fulcrum effect where the independent and arguably more moderate voices had to be heard. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I know you use the example of Manchin and Cinema as examples of moderates in today's Democratic Party. I agree with you on that, but I would also say they're villainized virtually every day by Democrats. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's not as though they're celebrated by today's Democratic Party. It's that they're reluctantly brought along until Democrats can replace them with people or elect more, more traditional Democrats. And, and that's okay. But if you're, 
if you're one of those kind of centrist consensus, left, right, moderate people, you can't really look at a mansion and cinema and say, oh yeah, that's the path I want to take where I get beat up every day by my own party. I did that as a Republican. It's not fun. <laughs> but but the idea of having a fulcrum effect in the U.S. Senate is an intriguing one. We'll see if Evan McMullen were to get elected in Utah. He has said he will not caucus uh, with either side. You have an independent in Missouri who has said he would caucus with the Republicans. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, the Evan McMullen race would be fascinating should Evan McMullen in Utah beat Mike Lee. It, it should be truly fascinating for us to watch. What does that independent dynamic look like compared to an Angus King or a Bernie Sanders who might be an independent or, I guess, in Sanders' world, a uh, uh, a socialist affiliation of some sort in Vermont, but they caucus with the Dems. It, it would be interesting to see what an independent caucus in the Senate did to governing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there anyone currently running for office who identifies as a forward party candidate? Well, so there were three organizations that came together. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Forward Party, the Serve America Movement, and Renew America Movement. The Serve America Movement actually elected the mayor of Newtown, Connecticut, uh, in the last cycle. He had been a three- or four-term Democratic mayor and really felt the partisanship seeping down into the local level and just wanted a, you know, a consensus-based governing model as a mayor of a small town. So uh, he was elected in Newtown. We have had other candidates, as I mentioned, run for office under the SAM affiliation, the Serve America movement. We had the unity ticket in, in New York where we achieved party status and then Governor Cuomo kneecapped four minor parties and eliminated our status. Uh, in Connecticut, we had a unity ticket that received sufficient votes in 18 that we will have the third line on the Connecticut ballot. We will have a nominee um, probably announced within the next week or so. And then you do have some lower level office holders. I know Forward had a few uh, of their legacy candidates who were running. Renew America had a few that are affiliated. What you will not see, and this is very important in 22, you will not see the Forward label assigned to candidates because the state laws just don't allow ease of access for a new party. So it, it's a crawl, walk, run strategy to receive legal record, excuse me, legal recognition. We anticipate legal recognition in about 15 states this year, 35 in 2023, and all 50 states in 2024. Interesting. Okay, so let's move on to some of the uh, more structural um, electoral reforms that the Ford Party supports. And maybe let's start with ranked price voting. This is something that I really I think is a great thing for democracy. And I'm wondering uh, why ranked choice voting and make the case for our audience who might be unfamiliar with that term. Sure, look, uh, electoral reform is the closest brethren to the new party space. In large part, new parties will fail if we don't achieve electoral reform. So ranked choice voting, open primaries, gerrymandering reform, something called fusion voting, which is a fascinating electoral reform. But ranked choice voting ultimately elects the person who receives the greatest level of consensus of the voters, which is probably what we should have. I mean, con contrast that with the really rigged system of a closed primary where 15 to 18% of the electorate turns out in a closed primary, nominates a candidate into a gerrymandered district where there is no competition from the other party. And so now you have somebody that 15% and arguably the, the most ideological 15% of that community gets to elevate a candidate that's really out of step with a majority of the voters. So ranked choice voting provides an answer to that because it ultimately is able to assess your ranking, right? Your priority of the candidates and ultimately through a consensus given arithmetic, uh, arithmetic model, is that the right word, <laughs> arrives at a consensus elected yeah. official. I, I think it's a wonderful process. And it really does promote third party candidates. It gives room for more diverse thought, more diverse opinions. And I think that's an important feature of ranked choice voting. Um, okay, so let's move on to um, maybe the Electoral College. Does the party have a position about amending the Electoral College? Or at least maybe do you have a position about Electoral College reform? Uh, not not that I have heard. Um, mm -hmm. I Look, I... I kind of like the electoral reform, um, or sorry, the electoral college model as it is, simply because I think having high bars 
is usually a good thing. Um, but I'm sympathetic to the national vote model as well. Um, I, I look, I think the broad, if you take a broader lens, the division within our country from urban centers on the coast to the flyover states, I, I think we continue to flirt with a very dangerous balkanization of the country. And the Electoral College notionally was designed, and now you can, you can bring in all the, the policy reasons around race and slavery and everything else, but, but from a math model of the election, one of the tenets was that it would force candidates to attend to very diverse interests across the country, from agrarian uh, to urban to industry to whatever they might be. I don't know if that is as true today. I think my hope is it would be. My hope is, as I mentioned, the Democrats and Republicans would start out each cycle saying, I'm going to try to win all 50 states. I mean, that happened in our lifetime. Reagan got 48 states. Now, it was a unique time period. Um, but I think that that is why I still hold on personally as David uh, to the Electoral College model. But I'm sympathetic to to reforms that, that could drive better governing behavior and, and candidate behavior. So if we had more time, I would make this um, a full discussion, and maybe we'll have you back to talk about it, because I see flyover in a very different way. I'm from a blue state that is flown over, even though we have a huge vote, because of how the Electoral College operates. So I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a terrible idea. And because I have lived through two candidates winning the popular vote and losing because of the Electoral College, um, I think it's something that needs dramatic reform. And thirdly, I'll just make this point, uh, which I think you would agree with, that the way it works now has allowed for potential authoritarian takeover if we don't clarify some of the language of the election act that currently exists. Oh, if sure. we allow state legislatures, for example, to have the power <laughs> that they have. So that clearly Holy. needs attending to. But um, let me just ask you uh, uh, one last question, and then Victor will ask a last, last question. Um, will you ever run for office again, either on the <laughs> forward party or any other party? Uh, I'm in the never say never camp, but I don't, I don't have any immediate plans. And, and I've, I'll be very honest with you. What happens is <clears throat> if you take a journey that I've taken, and I, I would like to say I stood on principle and standing up to the Republican Party and leaving the Republican Party, you immediately lose that voting coalition. You lose that constituency. There is no place for you to land because the Democrats say, yeah, we already got our, our people. Um, and, and that's fine, right? It's true when, when you're on the ballot as a moderate Republican against a, a Democrat, the Democrats might say, yeah, Jolly is good on guns and equality and that stuff, but our guy's already there or our girl's already there. So yeah. there is no voting coalition for the disaffected Republican among Democrats. And the converse is true. Republicans would not embrace a disaffected Dem. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not really an independent constituency. Uh, and, and that's just the reality of it. I, I nearly ran for governor this cycle of the state of Florida, and mm -hmm. the polls would really top out in the low 20s for an independent candidate running in a purple state, which is actually kind of high for an independent, but it's a reflection mm -hmm. of the fact that an independent candidate's not really viable in American politics today, which is what the forward party's really trying to change. Well, let's wait and see what the forward party does, and maybe that'll change your answer to my question. <laughs> maybe so. So there's there's a lot of young people thinking about running for office, and given the two-party structure um, and potential forward party, uh, I guess, introduction, what advice do you have for young people running for office or thinking about running for office now? Yeah. Do it, do it, uh, commit to it. Now, that doesn't mean do it this cycle, um, because I will also say from a, uh, with a little bit of gray hair, which I know no young person wants to hear from, <laughs> it is important to focus on your career, your community, and set about creating a, a, a life that's right for you and perhaps your family one day. Um, it is hard to do that in politics starting immediately. It's a, it, politics is a, a pretty rough and tumble space. So, you know, recognize that incremental career success in politics is really significant. I would also say it's very rewarding. 
to have a direct impact on the future of our communities and the future of our country. As I said at the opener, I tried to quit politics three times and it just kept bringing me back in. Politics is a special place to kind of exercise some of your interest and and your career if it leads you in that direction. And I, I would also say to to young people, don't think of politics as just the electoral space. Um, I think working on Capitol Hill is the best graduate school in the country. I mean, you get a front row seat at at real time issues and you learn a lot about how our government works. There are also think tanks, there are advocacy organizations. If you're passionate about climate or, or whatever the issue might be that drives you, it's a very wide lane and it's a very rewarding lane as well. So I would encourage people to, if that is where your interest is, lean into it, um, lean into it. Don't think it's just about getting elected to office. That may happen through the natural course of your career if you just lean into doing the right things uh, in all the other places. Great. Thank you so much, David, for joining us and presenting the case for the Forward Party. We look forward to seeing how it develops and and emerges throughout uh, the country. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. You got it. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Jill. So, Jill, we just heard from David Jolly, and he presented the case for why he believes the Forward Party is a viable third party. Um, Do you remain skeptical or do you remain um, more supportive of it now? Well, I'm still scratching my head. Um, I think the questions I asked, he had answers, but they didn't answer my underlying concerns. And while I certainly agree with some of the major structural issues he raises and things like gerrymandering, which is terrible and needs to be taken out of political hands and Um, I certainly don't agree on the Electoral College Act, which I think is terrible. Um, And I I see parties as offering voters who don't have time to study individuals in that much depth um, a way to identify whether, in general, they can count on a policy that hasn't been discussed yet coming out in a way that they would feel comfortable. Because when you elect someone, you don't know exactly what issues they will face. But if you elect a Democrat or a Republican, you, at least in the past, and the Republican Party is sort of in a place now where I agree with him, it it doesn't stand for anything that Republicans used to stand for, which was small government, low taxes. Now it's like they don't want any government and they want their way, period. Um, the religious right has taken over a lot of their policies. Um, so I can see why people don't have a home there, uh, even though they may believe in the basic fundamental economic policies. So I guess, yes, skeptical, uh, maybe skeptical is not the right word. Just I'm open to hearing more, but I don't see what value the forward party adds It's really just like saying, I'm not affiliated with any party. Here's my platform. Because that's what he kept saying was each individual community gets its own platform. So then it's up to voters to listen to exactly what each candidate is saying. And that's fine. I mean, in an educated world like we have, that should be true, where everybody knows what you're getting exactly. And no one fits 100% into Democratic platform or Republican platform And even though we criticize the Republican Party for having no platform, it seems to me that in a way they really don't either, other than on a few very narrow issues. What did you think? And that's part of my concern, too, is that they take this bottom-up approach where I feel like so much of parties is kind of top-down. The party offers you something to believe in, and then voters vote for that. And I feel like the third party, I don't know, the forward party just seems like Maybe maybe he's just more optimistic. I just don't think that there is, um, at least in this political environment, much of a um, potential for this. I feel like voters just ha- have to have the expectation of what they're voting for now. And that model maybe in the future could work. But I just feel like I'm a little mm-hmm. bit skeptical about how effective that's going to be right now. And, you know, also, you know, I, I don't agree with I, know, I don't disagree with him on the fact that maybe Democrats aren't doing the best job at reaching yes. the independent and moderate voters. But I think right now, if 
the solution to that, I don't think, is introducing a third party. I think it's maybe to make Democrats better at that because there's so much at stake. And there is a real chance that I think third parties still could pr- produce some sort of spoil effect where if you vote for a third party that's taking away votes from Democrats and therefore helping, for instance, maybe in a state like Arizona might help elect someone like Mark Fincham, who is a election denier mm-hmm. and uh, Republican. And if it happens to be that, I I. I I honestly think the stakes are just too high right now to introduce a third party. And I feel like we just be would be much more better off supporting and advocating for the Democratic Party to do better and bring those voters. And, you know, we, we had conversations with lists about what Democrats can do uh, in terms of reaching Fox News viewers and getting more of our candidates on Fox yeah. and reaching Republicans. And so maybe I think that's probably a more effective way forward. And I don't know, I just still feel skeptical about everything uh, affiliated with a forward party. But like you, I remain kind of open-minded about, you know, if there is, if there are candidates who run under the forward party and see good results, I'm willing to make, you know, I'm willing to amend my, uh, my beliefs on this. But as of now, I don't know, I still feel like there's so much of this political environment, even though people are saying they're ready for a third party, I I don't know how that's going to translate once Election Day rolls around. So I have some questions for you um, or for our audience, too. I'd love to hear from them. Um, And one is David mentioned having a governing coalition, which, of course, you need to have a governing coalition or else nothing gets done. And, you know, you can look at countries like Israel that have I don't know how many parties, lots and lots and lots of parties. And. What ends up happening is you then have to form a coalition of sometimes very disparate points of view, and that makes it hard to get things done, and then governments fall apart, and you end up having multiple elections within a few years. Um, So I'm not sure if the multiple party thing really works, but I would love to hear more about that and read more about it and think more about it and think how England works and... Um, I think there's a lot to be thought about in that regard. Did did anything he said about the governing coalition make you think, yeah, that's a good idea? I mean, it's interesting because I, I know that there are, you know, America's unique. The two-party structure in America is unique. And a lot of other countries have third parties and and, and alternatives. And frankly, you know, I, I, I'm not someone who would, would make an assertion and say I know a lot about um, how other parties countries do or make it work. But I, I feel like if, you know, if our audience has any insight into that and, you know, maybe we can both do some research and follow up and um, do a chat chat next week or, or sometime in the, in the future about, you know, how do other countries um, do third parties? What makes it effective? And how could the United States bring that model? Because the United States is also unique in the sense that it's just so big. And I don't know if um, a third party structure would on the national level, at the federal level, um, I don't know how it would play out, but maybe it could. And I feel like maybe we can bring on a guest who is an expert on um, comparing different electoral systems. That could be an interesting conversation, I think. And, and what did what did you think about the platform that includes positions that are 180 degrees separated? Um, you know, I, I, I honestly I feel like, again, there has to be things, you know, it seems like a lot of it is, you know, if if you disagree on something like abortion, you can find a middle ground in the forward party. And I don't know, I feel like there's still a lot of diverse thought in the Democratic Party. I think that we're able to come to agreement on a lot of things. And I just, I, I you know, you, you raised such a good point with the uh, abortion example of, you know, if you support 24 weeks versus zero weeks, I just don't think there's a middle ground at that point. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I can see it working at the yeah. very low level, you know, again, using his example of the dog catcher. OK, yeah. you can have people who have very different views on dog catching. Um, but if you're electing to a collaborative body as opposed to an individual uh, position, then I don't think you can have members from very divergent points of view because you're going to end up without being able to reach agreement within the party on how to proceed. And that's that's the problem. So if it's an individual office that has its own individual stake and doesn't have to collaborate, 
Well, then it's up to people to pick the person who represents their views for that particular office. But I think when you're selecting a member of Congress, Senate or House, you have to select people who will work well with others. And um, so that that's where I'm a little troubled. But I thought yeah. it was a fascinating conversation. He's a terrific guy. And uh, I will look forward to hearing more as candidates start unveiling themselves as, party, as part of the forward party. Me too. And if you have any suggestions about what to read about other countries and how they structure it, please email it to us or, or tag us on Twitter because that would make for an interesting uh, uh, conversation and um, deep dive. So uh, we thank David again for coming on the podcast. It was an interesting discussion. Um, not quite sure how convinced both Jill and I are, but we we are open to the possibility, uh, I think, before, I guess, a little bit more than you know what we came in uh, uh, expecting. So we thank David. Uh, we also thank you for tuning into this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed it and found it as fascinating as we did and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube and please leave us a five-star review or rating as that helps others find this podcast tremendously. Thank you so much again, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics.